Thank you very much. All right, well, if you would turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and we want to continue looking at what Luke says to us about the early church and think about how it applies to us today in light of all that we're going through in our country, in light of wanting to live in a world that is in some sense resetting in various ways and wanting to live to please the Lord. So Acts chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, fifth book in the New Testament. We'll look at verses 41 through 47 again this morning. So let me read these verses for us. Let me just remind you that um, Paul says in a couple different places that his purpose in ministry was to help them, the believers, in the progress and joy of the faith. And so when you think about what the Bible says and as you read the Bible, it's helpful to think about it in terms of what is said here is meant to express keys to my joy in God, my happiness in God. Even if it's talking about hard things, even if it's talking about uh, dealing with sin and repentance and all those kinds of things, whatever it may be talking about, it is ultimately pointing to our relationship with God and how we can truly find our joy and peace in God, no matter what is going on around us. And so let me read again uh, these verses for us, 41 through 47, and keep that in mind uh, as we read. Verse 41, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. One of the things that I thought about this week is the verse in the Old Testament where it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So if you're in a difficult situation, you're in a difficult time, in a difficult season, in a country where things are getting increasingly difficult, what do you need? You need the joy of the Lord. And the question is, where does that joy come from? Well, as I just mentioned, in Philippians and in 2 Corinthians, Paul links joy to faith. He speaks of the joy of the faith or or joy of faith, which means when you think about all that the Bible calls us to, whether it's love, whether it's hope, or whether it's joy, all of those things are linked to faith, to what I believe what I believe about God, what I believe about myself, what I believe about the gospel and about the world I live in. It's all about where my faith is. And so I want you to think about this morning 
your faith. And I want to think about my faith. And the question is, how's your faith this morning? Because it's going to determine how your joy is. It's going to determine how your hope is. It's going to determine how your love is. How's your faith? And as I ask that question this morning, I'll be asking myself that very same question. It's an important question in light of the things that we've been talking about because verse 42, the very beginning, is the part that of this description of the early church that we're focusing on right now where it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The Bible also says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the word of God, Jesus says, is the truth. And so the only way I can have a proper faith is if it's linked to the truth of what God has revealed. And therefore, it's very, very important that I am devoted to the truth of God. And the way it's described here in this verse is it's described as as the apostles' teaching. You know, imagine yourself, uh, you know, you're part of this movie, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or something, and you, you find yourself in a sink, okay? And the water is draining out of the sink. And you're being pulled downward in this flow of water. And you look around you trying to figure out what you're going to do. And you see a feather floating on top of the water. And you think, well, I could grab onto the feather. Or you see this uh, ring that's attached to the side of the sink. You think, or I could grab that ring. Or I could just go with the flow. That's the way I feel about where we are in our country. I feel like our country's going down the drain. I feel like the flow is a downward pull on us as a country it's a downward pull on us as believers and we begin to look around and say okay what am i going to grab on to and there are some people that are just going with the flow they're, they're not concerned about the fact that they're just going down with the culture so to speak then others are concerned but they're grabbing on to feathers that are just going to continue to go down. Those feathers have no fixed point of reference and they cannot keep you from going down the sink, going down the tubes. But there, there is something that is fixed, like the ring on the side of the sink, and that is the truth of God. The Bible says the word of God is fixed in heaven. It is immovable. It does not change. And at the heart of the truth that God has revealed to us, is what is called the Apostles' Doctrine, which centers upon the Lord Jesus. I thought this morning about a verse in Hebrews where it says, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to, to the preserving of the soul. Another way to say that would be, We are not of those who sink down with the culture in fear or in conformity, but we have a faith that is preserved no matter what the pull is in our country, no matter what is going on around us. Um, In the book of Proverbs, you see a couple different things going on there. In in chapter uh, 7, you see a description of a young man who is uh, seduced by a woman. And that is the temptation, a very real temptation, even in our culture today, obviously, is the temptation to immorality, sexual immorality. But also in that book is the connection to not simply 
sexual immorality, but spiritual adultery. And oftentimes, the 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 idea of uh, unfaithfulness in the area of um, physical intimacy is a picture of our unfaithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to the truth. And that's why later on in the book of Proverbs, you have a description of the wise woman and the foolish woman. And the wise woman is uh, calling out to the people who pass by and she says, whoever's naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. She's calling out to people that are going down like this. And there's another woman, the woman of folly, it says, is boisterous, she is naive and knows nothing, and she is calling out to people, saying, whoever is naive, let him turn in here, and to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, saying, come on down with me, because it says, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol, going down. So, in the book of Proverbs, we have the reality of wisdom that calls out and folly that calls out. And the question is, who am I going to listen to? And that's why at the end of Proverbs 7, it says, Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Whether it's in a situation where there's the temptation to physical immorality or the temptation to spiritual adultery. Either way, we are not to let our hearts go there, and we are to fight with the truth of God, the wisdom of God. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the teaching of the apostles that it says in Acts 2 that they were devoted to. He speaks of it as wisdom, just like it's spoken of in the the book of Proverbs. And 1 Corinthians 2 says, Paul says, yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, Uh, Excuse me, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, if you've seen uh, the Chronicles of Narnia movies or read the books, Uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I believe that C.S. Lewis had that passage in mind uh, with regard to the killing of Aslan and the stone table. You remember, after Aslan is put to death on the stone table, uh, Lucy and Susan are crying and weeping, and all of a sudden they hear a huge crack, and they look around and they see that the stone table has been cracked, and Aslan is gone. And they wonder what has happened. And Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, shows up in his resurrected glory and Susan asks, what is going on? And this is his response in the story. Aslan says, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic which put Aslan to death, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery 
was killed in a traitor's stead, as Aslan had been uh, killed in um, Edmund's, thank you, stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. What he's saying is there's a wisdom that uh, the devils don't have and the world doesn't have, and that wisdom is the key to everything. And Paul is saying the wisdom that is the key to everything, the key to going through anything, is the apostles' teaching, which is at its heart the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that's why it also says in Hebrews 2, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. We are prone to be pulled down. In that sense, drift a downward drift with our culture, whatever it may be. We're prone to simply be pulled down and to drift away from what we've heard and we need to fight. And we have to fight by being devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so what is that? Well, the apostles were um, the 11. uh, That Obviously, Judas betrayed Jesus. The 11 plus Matthias and then Paul and uh, those who were added that proclaimed the truth of the gospel and it's recorded for us in the new testament ultimately the writers of the new testament affirmed all the old testament so it's really the whole bible and yet at the heart of it is the good news of a kingdom and the good news of a king and as we've said at the end of acts it says that paul preached the kingdom of god and taught concerning the lord jesus christ so that is the apostles teaching in a nutshell It's all about the kingdom of God that is coming. And the only way we can be a part of that kingdom is if we receive the king who is named Jesus. And yet this becoming a part of the kingdom is not about earning it by doing the same kinds of things the king does or somehow fighting the king's battles. It's about trusting the king. And that's why in Acts 20 verse 32, Paul could say, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The teaching of the apostles was all about grace, that the king has laid, laid down his life for his subjects, and all those who entrust themselves to him will be a part of his kingdom. And that grace is something that we receive through faith. It says in Acts 24 that uh, Felix called to hear Paul, and Paul spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So the word of grace is a word that points us to faith, to trusting in what Christ, the King, has done for us so that we can be a part of his kingdom. And what kind of kingdom is that? It's a kingdom filled with righteousness, joy, and peace. A kingdom of perfect love as... um, Jonathan Edwards would talk about it. So up here, we have on the left-hand side a a summary that we've gone over. We're not going to go over it again today that summarizes for us what King Jesus has done. He was sent by the Father. He lived the life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die. He rose from the dead. He rules and reigns over everything now. One day he will return and he will rescue his people, he will defeat evil, he will um, judge all men, and he will usher in the perfect kingdom. The question is, what does a faith in that 
and in Jesus do? What does it look like? What are its characteristics? And I say that because you can read in certain places in the Bible where it talks about people believing in a sense and having a faith of some kind. But if you watch all that it says or watch how the story plays out, you realize that their faith isn't a saving faith. And so what does a saving faith look like? Or what is a faith that is going to stand the test of time look like? What does a faith look like that can go through anything and survive no matter what happens? And that's what we have on the right side is a, a, is a, a description of the way the Bible talks about faith that's like a diamond that has different facets to it. And all those things are different facets. So if you look again at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, It says this, and the first point is the faith that we're asking ourselves about when we ask the question, how's your faith doing? Basically asking ourselves, is our faith a faith that turns? Is it a faith that trusts? Is it a faith faith that rests? Is it a faith that hopes? Is it a faith that loves? Is it a faith that will endure? And the first thing is that Saving faith, a faith that is truly focused on the Lord Jesus and the gospel, is a faith that turns from sin to God for mercy in order to be set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. In Acts 2.37 it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So they're asking, how can I be saved? How can we be a part of King Jesus' kingdom? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he says, Repent or turn. That's what repentance means. It means to have a change of mind that results in a change of life. It's a turning from sin and doing what I want to do and trusting in my own goodness to turning to God for mercy and seeking to do what pleases him. And that's why we talked about this a lot last week, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that this this week, but I did mention the fact that in our day and time, uh, people are beginning to say, Savior theology isn't ever going to um, help us as a country. Meaning, Savior theology is the idea that um, what we need is a Savior from sin, personal sin. There are people who are beginning to say, you know what, that's really not what Christianity is about. It's about saving our society and people from oppression. And the implication is people are the way they are because of other people. And if you just rid people of those oppressors, then they'll be better people and they'll be okay. The Bible makes it very clear, just like Peter says here, he doesn't say go out and get rid of the oppressors if you want to be saved. He says, repent personally. Repent of your own sinfulness, your own hatred, your own uh, wrong attitudes and actions toward others and, and your offense against God, ultimately. Turn from that. And we have to ask ourselves, is that what my faith does? Is my faith in King Jesus the kind of faith that is concerned about sin, that is concerned about whether or not I'm responding rightly to President Biden? or to the rioters, 
or to my neighbor or to the person I'm sitting next to? Am, am I concerned about that? Because saving faith realizes that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, the Bible says. Jesus came to save us, not simply from the penalty of sin, but from sin itself. And therefore, we have to be careful being sucked down the drain of our culture that says, you just need to be saved from somebody else. When Jesus says, no, we need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from our own sin, both the penalty of it, which is hell, what we deserve, but also from the power of it, that we want to be more pleasing to God, even when people around us aren't being pleasing to God, even when our culture disintegrates in front of our eyes and goes crazy. We should still be most concerned about whether or not we're sinning against people that we think are losing their minds. Is that how our faith is? How is our faith doing? Secondly, is faith in Christ is trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior for your acceptance with God. If you would turn to Acts 16, just read a couple verses there. Acts 16, verses 30 and 31. This is the account that we're familiar with, the salvation of the Philippian jailer. There's an earthquake that happens, and he's terrified. And he begins to take his life, and Paul says, Don't! Stop! And then he goes into them, the jailer does, and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Which is very similar to what we heard in Acts chapter 2. This time, Paul doesn't say repent. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And last week we said, the reason why those two things are said is because they are uh, two sides of the same coin. And many theologians have talked about a repentant faith. That the faith that we have is a faith that repents of sin and trusts in Jesus for our salvation. So on the one hand, we want to be rid of our sin. We want to be done with it. We want to be delivered from it. Not only the consequences, but also the power of it. But we're trusting in Jesus for our acceptance with God. We're not wanting God to somehow enable us to fulfill what needs to be fulfilled, we trust in Jesus to have done it on our behalf. And there are those who would say, but why is Jesus so important? Why can't we just um, turn to God and why doesn't he just accept us just based on the fact that we've asked him for mercy? Why is faith in Jesus so important? And the reason is because God cannot show us mercy apart from justice. Someone has used the illustration of, um, let's say, um, I owe Dan $100. And the question is, what would it take for Dan to show me mercy? He has to take the debt upon himself. He has to pay the price. Somebody has to pay the, the debt. Uh, certainly the way the Bible pictures it, is that there's a debt that has to be paid. It's not a debt that can just be ignored or, or uh, somehow swept under the rug or just forgot about. This is a debt that has to be paid. And if God doesn't require us to pay it, then he must require himself to pay it. 
And that's why Jesus is essential, is that justice must be served. We live in a universe where justice will be served. God is just, and he says every sin will be appropriately, justly punished. God never says, I'll just forget it. But he does say, I'll forgive it. And forgiveness means I release you from the penalty you deserve because I will take it upon myself. And he took it upon himself in his son. And so when we ask ourselves how our faith is doing, we have to avoid our faith going in directions that imply that I need to somehow pay for my own sin. I need to somehow do penance or have to somehow uh, make up for for what I've done as if I could in any way pay for my sin. But I am to trust that my acceptance with God and his love for me is totally based on what Jesus did, that he has paid the debt. And so I entrust myself to him because he is the only way I can be accepted by God. This is important. We may talk about this more later on. But the reality is in our culture, more and more people are saying, if you want acceptance, you need to do something. If you want to be welcome in the church, you need to do something. You need to pay people back. Now, there is a place for restitution, certainly on a personal level. But that's it's gone beyond that in our culture. And people are talking in ways that people could never be finished paying things back. And yet the gospel is Jesus paid the price and paid the debt. And that's where our hope for acceptance with God and with each other needs to come from. That is the gospel. The third thing is the faith that God calls us to in Jesus is a faith that rests. It's resting in Jesus for God the Father's full and lasting love through faith in his pardon and perfection. If you would turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 through 19. We're actually going to spend some more time looking at this aspect of this probably next week. I just want to touch on it this week. And verse 14 of 1 John chapter 4, which is toward the end of the Bible, getting close to the book of Revelation just before it. It says, We have seen and testify... That the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4.14 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is... Speaking of Jesus, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So let me just tie together two things. Verse 14 says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Okay? And that is the basis for what he says in verse 16 when he says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Meaning a love that is full and forever. It's not just a temporal love. It's not just a partial love. It's a love as great as it could ever be, 
for as long as there could ever be. And he says, we have come to know and believe this love because God has sent his son and we have believed the testimony that God has given of his son. In the uh, children's Sunday school, uh, they talked about being in a laundry basket, right? Yes, all right. Uh, Today we're going kayaking to celebrate Emily's birthday, and so you could think of maybe being in a kayak, or you could think about being in an an airplane, which is the illustration that I read this week when somebody was thinking about what does it mean when the Bible says we are in Christ. Now that phrase is used probably more than any other phrase in the New Testament to describe what it means to be uh, in right relationship to God through Jesus, being in Christ. What does that mean? Um, I've heard comedians joke about, you know, uh, I'm going to be in the plane, you can be on the plane, okay, that kind of thing, in the sense that when you talk specifically about, do you want to be on the plane, like on top of the plane, no, I don't want to be on top of the plane, do you want to be under the plane, no, you don't want to be under the plane, do you want to be behind the plane, no, or in front of the plane, no, you want to be in the plane, you want to be in the laundry basket, you want to be in the kayak, so to speak, all imperfect illustrations, yet what are they trying to communicate? The idea is that wherever the laundry basket or the kayak or the plane ends up, that's where you end up. And whatever happens to those things happens to you. So that when it says that we, by faith, are in spiritual union with Jesus, we are in Christ It means, therefore, that no matter where we might find ourselves, whether we find ourselves in the midst of a burning forest or on a a nice um, beach somewhere or wherever it might be, if we're in Jesus, if we're in union with him, um, God will be with us. He will be with us. And we can know that he is going to do what? He's going to love us just like he loves his own son. If I'm in his son and he loves his son, then I am to rest in Jesus and therefore rest in God's love for me because he loves his son perfectly. And therefore, if I'm in union with his son, he cannot do anything but love me like he loves Jesus. Now, Jesus went through some pretty difficult things in this world, but did the Father stop loving him? No. That's why Jesus could say, take up your cross and follow me, but endure the cross for the joy set before you, and don't doubt the Father's love. Don't doubt the Father's love, because Jesus said, I know the Father loves me, and I always do what pleases him. That's why Jesus can sleep in a boat when there's a storm outside. He knew that the Father loved him. He knew he was going to be taken care of no matter what storm was raging in his life. And so that's why it's so important to realize that when I ask ourselves, is my faith a resting faith? Is it resting in Jesus and God's love for me? A full and forever kind of love? That's because of Jesus. That's why it can be full and forever. Am I resting in that? Or am I just overwhelmed with fear? You notice in 1 John it says, 
There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. When our fears arise, what are they saying? God does not love you, is not loving you. He will not take care of you. You're in trouble. And that's why it's so important to fight, to strengthen our faith so that it rests in Jesus and therefore rests in the love of the Father for his own Son. And to believe that more and more, no matter how hard it gets in this life. We'll talk more about that next week. Faith, saving faith, is also talked about in terms of hope in the New Testament. In Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews 11, the great um, uh, chapter on faith, it actually talks about faith in terms of hoping for the future. And therefore, our faith is to be the kind of faith that hopes in God for what he's promised us. He's promised us help. He's promised us true, lasting happiness and all because of Jesus. And we're to, we're to hope in God for that. In Romans 5, if you turn to Romans 5, we'll look at that passage. Um, the temptation for us is not to hope in God. If you've watched the Lord of the Rings movies and if you've tried to figure out what Tolkien might have been trying to picture by the, the ring of power, uh, this is one way uh, someone has talked about um, the ring as a plot device. Uh, this person has said the central plot device of the Lord of the Rings is, is the Dark Lord Sauron's ring of power, which corrupts anyone who tries to use it, however good his or her intentions. The ring is what Professor Tom Shippey calls a psychic amplifier, which takes the heart's fondest desires and magnifies them to idolatrous proportions. Some good characters in the book want to liberate slaves or preserve their people's land or visit wrongdoers with just punishment. These are all good objectives, but the ring makes them willing to do anything to achieve them, anything at all. It turns the good thing into an absolute that overturns every other allegiance or value. The wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved and addicted to it. For an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it. And therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored. To harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. So what's so bad about worshiping another god? What's so bad about looking to people or things to be our ultimate help or our ultimate happiness? It destroys us and other people. It keeps us from truly loving them. We just manipulate them and we attack them if they don't give us what we want. And that's why it's so important that we ask ourselves, is my faith the kind of faith that puts its hope in God, not in anyone or anything else for my ultimate help and my ultimate happiness? This is talked about in Romans 5, 1 through 5 in this way. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. 
And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. To exult means to be excited about, to be joyful, to rejoice in our tribulations. This is what Dan was talking about earlier. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Why was the Holy Spirit given to us? To be our helper, to be our comforter, to provide what we need in this difficult land that we live in. And so our hope is in God, who actually lives inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the helper that Jesus promised. And so our hope is in God, who lives in us and has promised to be with us and never leave us nor forsake us and to meet our needs. And then we see earlier where it says that we exult in hope of the glory of God, that we rejoice in the fact that one day, this world is going to be radically changed. A great reset is going to happen. And this world is going to be delivered from sin and suffering and evil. And it's going to be filled with perfect righteousness, perfect joy, perfect peace. And we will enjoy that forever. It's not that way now, but we have the hope of the glory of God, to be like God and to see the glory of God and to enjoy the glory of God, so that our hope in God is something that causes us to have joy in light of the fact that he's with us now and he's not going to leave us and he's going to help us. And we have joy that one of these days we're going to lay down our sword and we're going to lay down our burdens and we're going to have perfect joy and peace in the presence of God. And we have to ask ourselves, how's my faith doing? Is that where my faith is looking? Am I looking to God for my help and my happiness? Uh, C.S. Lewis said, Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. It's the history of, a, of sin in a fallen world. Looking for something other than God that will be our help and our happiness. Fifthly, The faith that we need to look for is a faith that is in submission to God's word and his sovereign will of our lives. It's a faith or a love that is exercised with God's people, depending on God's spirit, so that we can be like Jesus. Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. Just look at a couple of verses there. There's a story that you've probably heard before in various... um, settings that talks about the fact that uh, one way to picture um, how faith works is there was a story of a a man and his son during the the blitz in London during the second world war Um, bombs are being dropped they're having to leave this building that has just been struck and it's nighttime it's dark and the man and his son run out of the building and, they, and the man jumps into this bomb hole, crater that's been made. And the little boy is still up at the top. And he's looking down, but it's nighttime and he can't see his dad. But the dad is looking up and the, the bombs are flashing all around so he can see the silhouette of his son. And he says, son, jump. And the little boy says, I can't see you. 
And the father says, but I can see you jump. And the little boy trusts his father and obeys. He trusts his father and he jumps. And someone has said the Christian faith enables us to face life or meet death, not because we can see, but with the certainty that we are seen. Not that we know all the answers, but that we are known. That God knows us, that he's with us, and we can trust him. And so it says in 1 John 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. If you think about what's being said there, he says this is the love of God. This is the practical outworking of what it really means to... um, Treasure God, value God, prize God, trust God, love God. We keep his commandments. And therefore, we love God. We love other people by giving ourselves to submit to the word of God, to trust it and obey it. Even when we can't see, even when it's dark and we wonder what's going on and why it's going on. That was Job's whole problem is I can't understand what God is doing. And yet, though he was tempted sorely, he still held on and he still sought to maintain his integrity and to trust and obey God in that difficult situation. And the question is, how's your faith? How's my faith? Is it seeking to trust God even when things are dark and difficult? Again, C.S. Lewis could say to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to Christ, it must follow that you're trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing those things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. It's because I love God that I seek to obey him. It's because I trust God that I seek to do what pleases him according to his word. And that needs to be um, the flip side of not wanting to sin in the midst of all that's going on. That is what God calls us to during this difficult time and to endure in that whole process, which is the last thing. We're called by faith to endure faithfully in the face of suffering and seduction or pain and pleasures and to endure like Jesus who endured the cross for the joy set before him. Uh, If you would look at Luke 18, verses 13 through 15. Um, Years ago, uh, people realized that there were other metals that looked like gold, and people realized that they could uh, fake people out and sell things as gold that weren't gold and make a bunch of money off of it. And so people decided we need to figure out a way to determine what's really gold and what's not. And as a result, they came up with an acid test, and they said you can take what appears to be a gold object of some kind and rub it against this um, dark or black stone and it would leave some of it there, some of the metal there and then you could put put acid on it and if it washes away the mark that was made then it's not true gold. 
But if the mark remains, it is. That is ultimately the indication that our faith is real. That when the acid test comes, we remain faithful to Christ. We don't walk away. We don't curse God and die. We don't deny him. We hold on to him even to the point of suffering, even to the point of death, if God so wills. In Luke 8, verses 13 through 15, the Lord Jesus is talking about the uh, parable of the sowers, and he's talking about the different kinds of soil, and he describes uh, three kinds of soil here. He's already talked about the kind of soil that just totally rejects the seed and doesn't receive it. He says in verse 13, Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. In other accounts, it talks about in times of persecution, times of trial, they fall away. Then in verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity, which means they don't evidence themselves to be truly Christians. There's no fruit of love in their life, love for God or love for people. And so what do we have there in the rocky soil? We have pain. We have suffering. In the thorny soil, we have pleasures or seduction, the draining of the world in either case. But in verse 15, it says, But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, don't let go of it, and bear fruit with perseverance, with endurance. They don't stop holding on. They don't stop believing. They stand the test. And that's why in Hebrews 10, it talks about we need a faith that perseveres, that is preserved, that doesn't shrink back in fear, that isn't simply drawn down by the pull of the culture around us. And so we have to ask ourselves, how's my faith doing? Is it enduring? Am I holding fast? Or do I find myself beginning to question what the Bible says? Am I beginning to question whether or not Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life? There are those who walked away from Jesus, and Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Will you walk away too? And Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? There's no one else who has the words of eternal life. Is that what your faith says when everybody else is walking away? That's what we need to pray that our faith would say. That's what we need to pray that our faith would be like, that it would be a faith that turns and trusts and rests and hopes and loves and endures. And so we pray for help. We pray, God, give me faith. God, strengthen my faith. God, protect my faith. God, uphold me. Like it says in Isaiah 41, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And what will he be at work upholding? 
your faith in him so that it does not waver. Let's pray together. Father, we do just pray that you would help us as we ask the question personally, how's our faith doing? Father, our faith may be weak. Our faith may be challenged. Our faith may be even being sorely tested during these days in various ways. We pray that you would help us to go to you with our struggles, with our doubts, with our fears, with our unbelief, and grant us grace to ask you to help us, ask you to give us faith and strengthen our faith and protect our faith, and give us grace to trust you and to trust the truth of your word and the the good news of the gospel and to trust King Jesus and to hold on for dear life no matter what happens. Please grant us grace, Father, to do that. Please grant us grace to go to you for the help we need and grant us grace to hold on for the glory of your great name and for the salvation of others around us. We thank you for your word. Please grant good fruit to it in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.